If your model doesn't consider the impact of lease caress when they design their crew and when they play, then it's going to have a significant impact. What enables you and your models are her other abilities. And I was fascinated to hear that you typically bring them both because they're expensive and they both fit similar roles. But when I look at M3, the way Molly functions in a lot of ways to me, it's kind of the Nelly approach. Do you ever find yourself using the effigy with the upgrade that allows him to turn into the uh, emissary? floor. Today we're going to do a deep dive into the Resurrectionist Master, Molly, and how she and the Forgotten crew work in Malifaux 3rd Edition. Now, my guest today is Steve Bynum. He's an accomplished Reser player here in the U.S. Uh, he's been out on the West Coast for a good bit, but I really, we have mutual friends. Um, Owen Best out of the D.C. Meta is a good buddy of mine, and uh, Steve also um, knows Owen. So even though Steve and I have never really met before, um, we've rubbed elbows, and uh, I think Steve is uh, a fan of that Meta up there in Maryland as, as much as I am. So, uh, Stephen, welcome to the third floor. Um, can you give our listeners some a little bit of background of you? as a gamer specifically you know with Malifaux and what brought you to Rezzers? Sure thanks for having me on Craig. As far as gaming as a whole I go back quite a ways I was a competitive Warhammer player for a number of years early 2000 error won a number of grand tournaments went several years undefeated in GW's grand tournaments around the 2003-04 time frame had kids Due to kids and career, kind of dipped out of gaming as a whole for a while. Then finally, once my son had got old enough to get interested in gaming, I started looking around at some games after the great death of Warhammer. Initially, I was looking at Kings of War and came across Malifaux as I was looking at models to use as spirit host for Kings of War. Nice. I came across a number of Malifaux models, ended up ordering a few off of the war store 
found a few other models. I was like, hey, I can use this for something. I can use this. By about the third set of Malifaux models I was buying, I said, you know, I should really check out the rules. <laughs> the models are, maybe there's something to this game. So I downloaded the rule book. I got online. I started looking around at, at groups on Facebook, came across the Capital City area group. I travel out there a lot for my job. Uh, Owen had recently made a post on there talking about game nights that he hosts. I hit him up, got him to do a demo for me. That was maybe a year and a half ago, and that was really it. That was all she wrote. I, at that point, I was in wholeheartedly. Yeah, it's a hell of a game, man. And um, I, I, though I didn't play uh, Warhammer Fantasy, um, a lot of those DC players um, – you know, came from fantasy. And what I hear from them is, you know, really that depth is, uh, is something that they couldn't find anywhere else, but they did find it in Malifaux. I'd experimented around with some other games before I had pretty much quit gaming. I'd done War Machine, a few other games as well. In a lot of ways, when I first looked at Malifaux, it kind of reminded me of how Warcasters function in Malifaux, um, or in War Machine, rather, in Malifaux, but of course, you've got that level of depth and complexity across your entire crew instead of just with one model. I really enjoyed that aspect of the game. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, it... um It's, it's, a, it's a good game. Um, I'm, I'm really anxious to see how third plays out. Um, the games of third I've played, I've been real happy with it um, because I think... Part of what attracts you and I to the game ends up being a little bit of a barrier to new players. I'm not sure that uh, a lot of new players come in with the same mindset you did, um, where you were looking for something that's got that depth and uh, complexity and, you know, is going to make your brain hurt a little bit. Um, and also, you know, allow you to be competitive knowing that the better player, generally speaking, is going to win the game as opposed to the person who has the hot dice. Um, so I'm hoping that we find a, a nice medium here with third edition where we can, you know, it takes care of you and I, but still uh, allows us to grow because, you know, I've played a lot of games and uh, there's no game that for me that comes even close. But uh, enough about us. Let's talk about Molly and the Forgotten Crew. So what I want to do, Steve, is I want to kind of dig deep into really not only Molly, but the crew, because, you know, before you could just uh, with with uh, second edition, you could really just dive into the master because really the rest of the crew is going to be, you know, pretty variable. Um, but now with the keyword system, I think you have to talk about the crew, the master and the keyword together. So I want to talk about, you know, how you you know, what Molly does, and just generally speaking, I don't, you know, we're not going to read the card to everybody, but, um, and, and really get a sense of, you know, how do you build a forgotten crew? You know, how does that whole crew, you know, play on the table? Um, I really want to uh, find out, you know, your thoughts on paths to victory, depending on the uh, scheme and strategy pools. Um, so can you start us off, Steve, just give us a kind of a general overview on Molly. Sure, no problem. Absolutely. So with, with any crew, I think one of the essential things you've got to do up front is take a look at how does the master function? How does the keyword as a whole function? How do the different pieces work together? And then approach your schemes or strategies and your crew selection around that. Starting out with Molly, she's generally a supporting master. She does a lot of things to improve your resource efficiency. She dictates how the opponent plays and limits some of their options as well. She does a lot of things to enable her crew. Really, I kind of 
look at her much like Nellie in second. Oh, that's interesting. As a reser player, I was really in, in M2E more of a, a Yanlo and a Seamus player. Guild was actually my main faction. But when I look at M3, the way Molly functions in a lot of ways to me, it's kind of the Nellie approach. She does things that limit your opponent's options, that handicap while they what they do, what options they have available. And then also gives you a lot more efficiency. She helps you with your hand size. She helps you with movement. She gives you free focus. She does those little things to help you get more out of your actions and more out of your activations by front loading some of the some of the space where you would have to focus and set up your schemes or accomplish your strats, et cetera. So that's how I look at her and how I look at the crew. Yeah, I gotta tell you, man, I have never thought about it that way, but you completely just, you know, lit up my head because that's a great analogy. And I played Guild in in uh 2E. That in fact Guild was my first faction. And I eventually ended up with Nelly as my favorite master for all of those things. And it helps me now understand why I've had so much fun with Molly in three because she is kind of the Nelly of of the Rezer faction. Um great call, dude. I never would have thought of that. Um and now that my wheels are turning in my head based on what you said, uh it gets more and more true. So that's, uh, that's very, very, very cool. She, um, wow. All right, cool. Let's, uh, let's dive in a little bit more. Um, I think we probably should start off by talking about kind of her signature ability. So can we uh, get into Lisa Caress? Yeah, let's do that. So uh, as you mentioned, the signature ability that she has on her card, which really also spurred the the greatest outcry or problems with her during, during play testing is Lisa Caress. It really aids her in disrupting the enemy crew and can provide another source of just ping damage all through the game for her. What it does for those that may not be familiar with it is it only works if Molly's the crew's leader. And if she is, then any time an enemy model within her line of sight declares an action that they have already taken during the same activation, they take two damage. So, for example, if a model walks and then declares walk again, and she has line of sight to them, they take two damage. If they shoot, declare a shoot action again, the same shoot action, then they would take two damage. And that goes across the board with any action a model can take. Yeah, it's very disruptive. It can be. Yep. Yeah. And we'll talk about kind of how, you know, to mitigate that. But it uh, one of the key things that I didn't realize when I read it the first time, Steve, but after playing it, I think it's important to point out, which is kind of when it becomes um, effective. So in your example, let's say I'm out of her line of sight when I declare my first walk action. Right. So she can't see me. So I walk my model and then. I walk within her line of sight and I declare a walk again. It doesn't matter that she couldn't see me for the first action. Absolutely. What matters is that she can see me when I'm declaring the action again, right? Spot on, spot on. It's when you declare the subsequent action, if she has line of sight to you with no range restriction, then you either take two damage or choose not to do the action. Um, This is really something new. One, because it's a, a table... 
a table-wide effect with no length restriction. And in second, in M2E, you didn't have many abilities that work like that. So when this first came out in the playtest, um, I was not in alpha, I was in the closed beta in blue group. Back then, it wasn't too damage. It was just a pure prohibition against duplicating actions, and it caused a lot of problems for people. Yeah. The key is understanding how to approach it. If your model doesn't consider the impact of least caress when they design their crew and when they play, then it's going to have a significant impact. If they're aware of it, if they think about how it functions and what it does, then it's really not so bad. So in the example you gave, if a model walks and then they walk again, they would take two damage. So instead, typically, you can declare a charge and then Mm -hmm. a walk or walk and then a charge to get the same amount of movement since models only have one move stat without having any penalty. The only real penalty is that, of course, on the charge, it's a push. So it's straight line vice the walk where you can actually maneuver around obstacles, et cetera. Yeah. And it, um, you know, having played Molly a few times and each time I played it, it was the first time my opponent had faced her. It um, it really created some aggravation and, and headaches for them, like turn one and turn two. But I found that my opponents kind of figured it out a little bit by turn three, turn four. Um, and it's still limited to them. Right. It'd be much easier if that didn't exist. But they realized that you can um, you can still get a lot out of your crew with that limitation but you have to think about it and the example you gave steve is perfect which is walk then charge or charge then walk um and you know you also kind of alluded to it too is if you've got two shoot actions you know don't declare both of them declare one shoot action then if you've got another ranged attack use that one um so it um it now you telling me about what where it stood in beta that's crazy um, yeah, but I'll tell you though, my experience in beta on both sides of the fence, using Molly and playing against her, was much what you describe now. The first time somebody sees it and they haven't faced that before, it's overwhelming. But once they think through it, once you talk to a player about it, you describe things like the walk charge option or the charge walk option, you talk about shoot charge or focus charge or you know, melee, then shoot if you kill the model and you run through these things, then people see there's still lots of ways I can still get the same end result that I want. Maybe not in the most efficient way, but without a whole lot of limitation or handicap. The big piece is you not only have to think about it in play, but it helps to think about it in crew selection as well when you're playing against it and select models that have action diversity, that have multiple types of melee attacks or multiple shooting attacks, or at least have both so that a player has the option to shoot and then charge getting the effect of both active of both actions within their activation without any penalty. Yeah. With, with M3, you know, before you build your crew, you know, the master you're going up against. So I think that's really good advice. And absolutely. I don't know, Steve, if I would make that the leading driver for my crew building. Um, I think I still might, you know, focus on keyword and focus on the pool, but 
if I'm looking at, you know, the last 15, 20 stones in my core crew, um, I think that that's a great thing to keep in mind um, is, you know, it's out there. It's not a surprise. It's not a gotcha. And, you know, our deep dive, I think, is going to be great for the reser players um, out there. But I think it's also going to be valuable for those people who are going to face her because um, I'm like you. I'm having a ton of fun with her and I have a sneaking suspicion she's going to be a popular master. Um, all right. So let's take a quick break, Steve. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the crew itself. Um, so we're going to talk about how, how to build a forgotten crew. So we'll be right back. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. Okay, now that we kind of got an understanding about, you know, what Molly is and uh, really, I think, talk about her kind of her signature thing, um, I think getting it's really useless to get into everything else that's on her card um, without getting into the crew itself. Because to Steve's point, um, she's not a master who functions on her own. She's uh, the Nelly of Resurrectionists, which I still still can't get over, Steve, how good that description is. So, uh, Steve, can we kind of talk through um, your approach to building a forgotten crew? Sure. Um, no problem at all. So when I play her, usually, regardless of the pool, i.e. the strategies and schemes I'm playing in, there's a standard core of the crew that I build around. And then from there, I, I option models in and out based on the specific either pool, the schemes, the strategy, or the opposing crew, etc. Looking at the crew as a whole first before breaking down the, the, the individual models, typically, obviously, you start with Molly, you start with a necrotic machine, which is her totem. From there, I look at a few core models, Archie, the Rogue Necromancy, and the Carrion Effigy. Occasionally, I find myself dropping one of those out, but I would say in 90% of the games that I play with Molly, I start out with her, the Necrotic Machine, Archie, the Rogue Necromancy, and the Carrying Effigy. Even though the Carrying Effigy isn't actually a keyword for her, but right. it's a versatile model I bring in. So when you and I, uh, you know, before the show, we're going back and forth on this. Um, I got to tell you, man, I had always approached Archie and Rogue Necromancy as, a, as an either or. Um, and I was fascinated to hear that you typically bring them both because they're expensive and they both fit similar roles. So I, can you go a little bit deeper and why you bring both? Sure. Really, it goes back to to what Molly does and how you're going to use her. We talked a little bit earlier about less caress, but really, I don't build my crew and my strategy around that because that's something that affects your opponent. It can help you out by limiting their options, but it doesn't enable you. What enables you and your models are her other abilities, her ability to push models with her bonus action and give them focus, 
her ability to put slow on opposing models, giving you that action advantage in the matchups. And when you look at that, that you're, what you're trying to do in a Molly crew is get action advantage, action efficiency and quality efficiency over your opponent. That's why I like multiple big models. When I bring in multiple big models like Archie, the rogue necromancy, those are things that even though Archie can't get focus since he does have numbskull, both him and the rogue necromancy, when you can put them on a model and set up an, an advantageous situation for them where the opposing models got slow, where your models got focused, where you can't be retaliated against, you're allowing that model to really get in there, pound in damage, eliminate key models, neutralize your opponent's approach without giving them lots of opportunities to respond. You really want something big, survivable, tough that can get in there and make a huge difference in the exchange, in my opinion, when you run Molly this way, instead of a whole bunch of smaller models. A lot of times, I don't just stop there with Archie and the Rogue Necromancy when I'm looking at big models in the crew. Frequently, I'll have another large model in there as well, Dead Rider, something like that. Occasionally, I'll bring in a second master, another henchman, maybe somebody out of keyword like Manos that we can talk about later. But I start with that core crew, and then you got to look at how I, I approach Molly and how I play her. So you got to look at Molly kind of as the quarterback. Yeah. I, I- uh, yeah, and I think that's I think that's a, a really good point. And, and w- one thing it makes me think of, I mean, the one thing that's a little bit scary about ex- the you know how expensive Archie and Rogue Necromancy is. I mean, when you look at the damage output and uh, the mobility, especially of Archie, you know, their price makes sense. But what can be scary about them is they can be a little soft, right? It, it it's uh, they don't hold up to focus fire. Um, if if somebody comes in and says I'm going to eliminate Archie or I'm going to eliminate the Rogue Necromancy because of their low defense um, and all the only really you know all they really have is the the uh, hard to wound, it can uh, it can be relatively easy to take them out. But what is interesting about less caress is it actually helps their them defensively because someone is not going to come in and just without a thought attack twice. It it can help them out, but when you look at less, you got to remember that it's all about the exchange there. It's about the trade-off and your opponent gets that choice. So if they think it's advantageous for them to take the damage in order for them to get that second attack or to get a flurry or get a, get something like that, they're going to. The other one too, that where I caution people against relying on less caress as a defensive tool is it's real easy to shut down. It requires Molly to have line of sight. Yeah. And when you're using a lot of big size three, 50 millimeter based models, it's very easy for them to position the attacking model so that Molly can't see them. And that's something you have to watch out for when you maneuver. That's a great point. I mentioned earlier, I run Molly as the quarterback, and I really do. She's almost the back of that of that V formation where she's in the center. Ideally, she's in a, an elevated position um, where she can have a commanding view of the battlefield, see the maximum number of things possible, and minimize opportunities for them to hide their models. The rogue necromancy and Archie, a lot of times I run as flankers. 
on either side of her. Sometimes I tag team them together, but typically I'll split them up. I still run them fairly close together. I don't split table wide usually, and we can talk about just play approach in general. And then I'm a little more reserved with them than you would think. A lot of times I'll hold them activate late. I want to look for those opportunities to pick off models early without retribution to give me that numeric and that action advantage, even though I'm dumping a lot of stones early into big models and very often start out either on par or outnumbered by my opponent model count. So, Steve, I think I, I think I understand what you mean by action advantage, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Can you kind of uh, help us understand what action advantage means in your mind? Um, sure. Well, there's a couple ways of looking at it. One is just the number of actions you get, you know, a la activation advantage and model count. The other is the quality of the actions and what you can do with them. For example, when you go back to the to the overall approach to the game, and this is something we can talk about more in depth later, in almost any game I play of Malifaux, with most of the crews I use, I try to employ an approach that's going to let me, quote unquote, seed the strategy early. Uh, do the things I have to, to enable me to score the strategy throughout the game over multiple turns early so that later in the game I can just focus on neutralizing the opponent, eliminating their models, preventing them from Mm -hmm. getting their objectives. So with a Molly crew, for example, depending on the strategy you're playing, like today I played a game against a Jacob Lynch player and it was turf war. So first turn, I managed to flip three of the markers to me. By doing that first turn, which really first turn is generally kind of a maneuver setup turn where you're not really engaged in a whole lot of direct confrontation with the the enemy, depending on the terrain, depending on the deployment, etc., it puts them on their back foot where they have to come to you to take those models away or take those markers away. So then when they're using activations and they're using actions to move to try to close the gap between us, I'm able to do things more effectively by attacking and killing their models instead of just moving up to engage. The crew is maneuverable enough that a lot of times you can get the conditions set early so that then when you do come, when you close with the opposing crew, you've got focus, you've got Molly heading out slow on their models, you're outdrawing them with cards to ensure you have the right cards you need to keep your models alive, to allow them to be effective, and you're not having to spend your AP at that point accomplishing the schemes and strats because you've already got those set where your opponent has to take it away from you. All right. So one last thing about the, uh, this dynamic duo of yours, um, you, you mentioned the effigy, you mentioned the necrotic machine, uh, at surface, it seems to me like you're, you know, bringing them in to help keep the big boys alive, um, with the heels. Um, am I thinking about that right? Or is there something else I might be missing? No, absolutely. I mean, obviously the necrotic machine you get for free because he's your totem. He does a lot of great things too. his ability to hand out poison. He's got a good melee attack that gets good damage. His bonus action that lets him heal is the main reason you have him. But then also he can stop people from using soul stones within a three-inch R, which makes your beaters more effective. The carrying effigy, you're absolutely right. The number one reason the effigy is in my list is just for his ability to heal, to keep Archie, to keep the rogue necromancy. Really, when you look at the crew as a whole, Pretty much everything I play in the crew, with one or two rare exceptions that are option pieces I bring in, are undead models 
So the carried mm-hmm. effigy can help keep them going and keep them upright so that they're being effective. Coupled with things like Archie's fading ability, which anytime he discards a card allows him to heal, which of course you're going to trigger anytime he flurries, sometimes if he gets the push from Molly, etc. The crew is actually surprisingly resilient. And even though a lot of the models in, in it have a reputation of being fairly squishy, with the right resources, with her ability to hand out slowed and neutralize the opponent's offense and the ability to get you cards as well, then typically they turn out to be pretty resilient when employed under those conditions. Yeah, I can tell you, um, she is not, I think, the easiest master in the Reser faction to play. Um, that speaks not to her effectiveness. Um, I think that core concepts of being good at Malifaux are needed to be good with Molly. Um, and that's positioning, uh, that's activation order, which gets into the healing and the fading abilities of each of the models. Um, I, uh, I'm with you, Steve, um, as you and I've talked about, uh, before the podcast that, um, she's going to be, I think one of the top tier masters out of the resers. Um, but I don't think she's going to be the best, the best one to start off with if you're new to the game, or even if you're new to resers in the same way that Nelly wasn't for guild. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot to think about, right? Um, as far as unrolling it. So we talked about Rogue. We talked about Archie. Um, what else is part of your core? So really, those five models are, are where I start. From there, there's a few other things I'll look at. When you After you've bought those five models, you've got about 23 Soul Stones left, which gives you a decent amount to tailor for either the specific pool or the opposing crew. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of times from there, I take a third big beater. My best choices for that, usually Dead Riders, probably my number one one choice at 11 Soul Stones. Um, other good options, sometimes I'll take another henchman, somebody like Manos, if I really need the maneuverability that he brings, even though he's not keyword. Or if I'm playing against a crew where I want the ability to shut down demise abilities, then Manos is a great buy there as well. Sometimes you may look at something like the emissary but of course at that point you're dropping the effigy since you can't have both in the list um, or the grave golem but i'll tell you 90 percent of the time my third big beater is the dead rider do you ever find yourself using the effigy with the upgrade that allows him to turn into the uh, emissary i don't uh, i've looked at it before the the emissary brings a lot, but if I've already got the other beater, either the Dead Rider or Second Master or something like that in there as well, and I'm relying on the, the effigy for the healing, then the trade-off is once he becomes the emissary, he's coming in as a weakened emissary. Granted, the necrotic machine can heal him some. At that point, if I've been effective, I don't need the additional, additional killing power that he brings, but I might need that healing more to give Archie that additional turn or to give the rogue necromancy yeah. that additional turn, etc. Are there any minions um, that you often turn to when you're building the crew? Yeah, the the minions are really an area where my selection of minions is based on what the actual scheme and strategy pool is. 
and we can talk about how to play into different ones later. When you look through the the other models in the keyword, before you even get to minions, there are a number of other choices out there. Sometimes those can be useful, sometimes they're not. The Forgotten Marshall is one that there's been a lot of debate on. Earlier in the beta, then I played the Forgotten Marshall religiously as one of the other pieces of my core. Sometimes I would take him instead of a third beater. When I did, I almost always put the Whisper upgrade on him to let him see the additional cards to guarantee he could get his summons off every turn. Now that he can only summon two models, I really don't take him as much. Philip and the Nanny, there's another one that, you know, your mileage may vary. Some people love what he does. I'm not a fan of him. I played him a lot in the closed beta, some in the open beta just to see, does he work? Is he in the right place? For what he brings, I just think there's a lot more effective ways to go. When it comes to the other models, bar none, the best minion in keyword and the one I most commonly use above anything else is the Kruligan. Oh. From there, from there, it's all what's my approach and what's my overall play strategy that I'm trying to accomplish with Molly. Maybe a rabble riser makes it into the crew every once in a while. Typically, if a rabble riser does come in, it's because I did for some reason run the forgotten marshal and I'm summoning those in to, to give me more combat power, to give me some cheap expendable crew, uh, cruise missile. Uh, but really, it's the Kruligan. The Night Terrors almost never make it to my crew as well. Once they made made the change to flight so that it's completely within, then, well, you still get quite a bit of maneuverability out of them. Nothing compares to the Kruligans in terms of their maneuverability, their ability to get into the strategies for you, to accomplish schemes for you, to disrupt the opponent's crew, etc. And those are bar, bar none my number one choice. That doesn't mean I run a lot of them because as I said, beyond the core crew, you're really building based on the schemes and strategy. Today, I played against a Jacob Lynch player that was playing a really themey, fluffy uh, Lynch crew. He had Jacob Lynch, he had Huggy, he had uh, Gwyneth in his crew, then a couple Bacchaneers, a few Illuminated, and a Lone Swordsman. We were playing Corner Turf War with a number of different schemes. I had one Kruligan in my list. Wow. The one Kruligan was there because with his by-your-side ability, that's enough that with my other keyword models that I had in the crew, Archie, Molly, etc., he could teleport to them, tag a turf marker real quick, then do something else, you know, and then immediately next turn, pitch another card, teleport to the other side of the board to do what you needed there. Now, you know, if I'm playing a game like Plant Explosives, then I'm going to run more than one. Mm -hmm. But in today's game, based on the scheme and strap pool we had, one was enough. But really, the Kruligans are it for me as far as the as the minions are concerned. They're so good for their stones. Um, it, uh, Absolutely. You, you read, you read their card and you go, okay, yeah, they're, yeah, they're fine. And then you see their cost and you go, Oh wow, that's a lot for that cost. Some of their abilities are, are have a bit of a opposing feel to them. Some of their abilities say, stay away from everybody. Some of their abilities say you want to get close. Um, but that in practice felt 
flexible to me, which I liked. Um, you know, sometimes I was putting the Kruligan in there to to disrupt, and sometimes I was, you know, running schemes with them. Um, so I, I'm with you on the Kruligans. Um, I've not run the Night Terrors yet, um, so I'm uh, interested to see, you know, your point about them, um, whether they're going to be uh, useful or not. I have struggled with Philip and the Nanny. Um, so it was, uh, it was interesting to see that, um, you know, you really gave uh, him a run. And boy, Philip and the Nanny read so good to me on his card. But I've run him in two games and I don't know if I'm going to bring him again. Yeah, he's really a model that much like you mentioned about the Kruligan, and my mileage is a little different with the Kruligans, but I see a lot of conflict in him. You know, the good is he's manipulative, he's got deadly pursuit, he's chatty, uh, he can damage enemy models within six when they gain focus, so if they're trying to get around less caress by doing a, a concentrate action first and then doing an attack, potentially he can do damage to him from that. He gains the benefits of other people's fading abilities when they're around him. He also has one more question, much like Molly, uh, and the six-inch aura that forces enemy willpower duels whenever somebody wants to take a non-walk action. And that sounds like it got a lot of things, but then when you look at it, okay, for the manipulative to be effective, I've got to activate him late. Yep. If I'm activating him late, then I'm not getting the, the effect of any of those other things. Exactly. You know. If boring conversation is going to shut down interacts or at least hurt um, their ability to do interacts, he's got to be in the middle of the table. Yep. And aside from manipulative at that point, with defense four and no heals and no other defensive mechanisms, not even hard to wound, he's not going to be survivable enough. He may have deadly pursuit, but he's got this huge base and no way to get around real good. I just, when I see the conflict of all the things on his card, um, how they work at counter to each other. And then aside from perhaps one more question being another source of handing out slow, there's nothing he does that really synergizes with the way I play the crew. Now, a lot of people are going to make the argument, what do you mean he doesn't synergize? He's getting all the fading abilities. Anytime they get one, he gets one. So he can push, he can heal, he can do all these things. But a lot of times for Philip, it seems to me like he's doing all these things but it doesn't really accomplish anything. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I mean, like I said, in theory, foe, I was like, oh my God, how efficient is this, right? I mean, a, a fading is efficient to begin with, but now, you know, she's picking up or he's picking up, you know, all of these fading abilities left and right. But when you get them on the table, A, positioning matters. So he's not getting nearly as much as you thought he was going to get. And your point is perfect, Steve. So yeah, he got focus. Well, now what's he going to do with it, right? And it um, it's one of those models that didn't didn't survive the first punch from the opponent because uh, I couldn't figure out what to do with them. Um, I'll be interested to see, you know, because we're when we're recording this, we're still in uh, at the end of beta before release. Um, it'll be interesting to see if anything happens, you know, full release. But I hope something gets touched up because I love my Philip and the Nanny model. Uh, I like how I painted them, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. And, and you know. Yeah, and I liked him in second. You know, I ran him in Karai. Okay, yep. not especially themey, but, you know, he worked great. I like the model. I think it's really cool and character and has a lot of character. Um, but, you know, I'll tell you, and like you said, unless they make some changes between now and when they actually publish, there's only maybe two occasions I could see playing him now. Um, one is 
in a game where I'm running a lot of Krilligans and I need one more good keyword model that has a lot of speed to get out there quick yeah. for the Krilligans to be able to anchor to, then, you know, maybe he's beneficial then because he can double walk out. Then he gets his deadly pursuit at the end of the turn so that on turn two, he's in a good place for them to teleport. You know, the other one is maybe for scoring claim jump because he can roll up at the end with deadly pursuit to get in position to score it. But I'll tell you, with the exception of that, and then you got to keep him alive for the rest of the game so you can get that other point. With the exception of that, if I'm just using him as an anchor, I'd much rather just have the rider in my list and have him taxiing something like the necrotic machine to the other side of the board. And then the Krilligans can use that to teleport too. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, no question. So, Steve, you mentioned uh, Karai. You know, you played her in second. Uh, that kind of leads me to my last question before we take a break, which is, do you ever hire a second reser into a Molly crew? Absolutely. There are a lot of crews I may not take a second master in. I have played Molly by herself with no other masters, but currently I'd say I'm running about 50-50 with hiring in another master. Wow. Part of it is a a product of the meta, and we alluded to this earlier. I know you're out in in Carolina and have got a a pretty healthy meta up there. You know, Owen and the guys up in in the Crystal City, D.C. area have got a great pool of people. Out here where I'm at in southeast Arizona, in my town, right around Fort Huachuca, the meta is like five. Um, Mm. And two of those are me and my son, right? (laughs) There's a few guys in in Tucson. There's a few more guys in Phoenix. The guys in Phoenix are really great guys, but it's really too far away for me to just go to for a casual game. We occasionally go up there for some tournaments that the last couple we went up for, me and my son won. Um, But in this area, there's not a whole lot. So really, there's only one or two guys I play against frequently. And the number one guy I play against the most is a pretty much exclusive 10 Thunders player that as of M3E is completely in love with Samurai and Fuhatsu. And Mm -hmm. when you're looking at models that are armored, that's one place that, in my opinion, the Forgotten Crew struggles with. You've got some good high min damage models like Archie or like the Rogue Necromancy, but they struggle against armor too. So most often when I do bring in another master, it's to deal with things like that. It's to deal with crews that bring in a lot of armor or bring in shielded or something like that. And then there's two places I reach. I either reach for Karai because of the, the tools that Karai can bring into a game with um, a Kirio and the tricks you can play with suicide bombing a Kirio in on a turn, having her die, resummoning her so that you can get her out there twice. You summon her first turn, you suicide her in on turn two. If they kill her, you bring her back so she gets to go twice with irreducible damage or really probably my most common second master that I bring in 
Tamale and do a number of other Rezzer Masters is Doc McMorning. Doc McMorning oh. is priceless. He is a model of turn when you're talking about heavily armored things. He doesn't have a real high damage track. It's good at the at the upper end. It's like a you know three moderate and a five severe. But what he really brings is the ability to ignore armor, hard to wound, hard to kill, and shielded. So yeah. if you come up against the Arcanist player, if you come up against like in my case, um, frequently against the Ten Thunders player that runs a lot of armor as well, uh, then he he's good for you know a samurai turn or an illuminated turn or or whatever else you that doc's got a treatment <laughs> so yeah. i uh boy you are speaking the gospel when you talk about armor because i ran molly into a ramos crew and boy less caress doesn't matter a whole lot when they have armor no no i mean you're getting them for the pain but the the yeah. biggest hurt though because i don't bank on on caress really doing a lot but you have the expectation when you put Archie into something or you put the rogue necromancy into something and Archie's coming in with potentially three attacks, including this flurry, you know, he's got a good damage track. You're counting on him to pound in the damage. And when there's a, you know, a metal golem on the other side of the table for me, or there's a Sabra on the other side so that he's only getting one damage per hit. You're just not getting the return you need on his actions at that point. You might as well have a Kruligan in there attacking. Yep. Yep. No, it's a, it's a really, really good point. Well, man, I have not run a second master with Molly yet. And, uh, I love Doc McMorning and I just hadn't thought about it. So, um, uh, credit to you, man. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really look forward to doing that. So, yeah. uh, anybody in the NC meta, um, I'm gonna make sure that I try that before I release this episode, so you guys don't get a heads up. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what we're gonna do now, we're gonna take another quick break. Um, when we get back from this break, I want to talk to Steve a little bit more about uh, kind of building to the pool, um, because one thing that makes Malifaux very unique is that uh, you you build your crew with a lot of knowledge about what might be hitting the table you know what the what the victory conditions are going to be and you you know what the deployment's going to be and you know what the opposing master is going to be so i, I want to uh, really kind of uh, mine uh, my uh, steve's mind a little bit and uh, understand that more so we'll be right back Okay, now that we've got kind of a feeling with uh, how Steve um, kind of builds his uh, core uh, Forgotten crew, I want to, you know, talk a little bit more about building to the pool and to the opponent. Um, so, Steve, can you kind of dive in? Let's start with strategies. Um, when you know what the strategy is, how does it affect how you build your Forgotten? Considerably. As I said earlier, really, there's a core crew that I work with. And after you build that core crew, you've got about 23 stones left. So almost half of your allotted stones is really where I start tailoring for what the what the strategy is and the schemes are. Up front, I think Molly is competitive in almost every pool. Maybe the one exception for a lot of Molly players might be Reckoning, because a lot of Molly players tend to play her with a lot more minions than I do. Uh, whereas I, I, I favor a much more elite version of her crew. Uh, but aside from that, I'll take Molly into almost any strategy and any scheme pool. Uh, just off the top of my head, uh, let's look at Plant Explosives. We can talk about it. The game I played today using Molly against a Lynch player was Turf War. So we can talk 
we can pick one of these, we'll just do plant explosives, and then we can talk about how the same principles can be adapted to several different pools based on the strategy and the schemes. Starting out for something like plant explosives, as I said earlier, my core crew is going to be something like Molly, the necrotic machine, Rogue Necromancy, Archie, Carrion Effigy. From there, with the 23 points I've got left, I'm going to bring in the Dead Rider. And then for a, uh, a strategy like Plant Explosives, if I really want to tailor for that strategy, that's where I'm going to drop in three Kruligans right off the mm. bat. Bar none, no one plants bombs more effectively than Kruligans. 12 points, three Kruligans. Those are going to get three of the explosive markers off the top. And then I'll put the others somewhere else. Molly, Necrotic Machine, Archie, Rogue Necromancer. you got a lot of choices because the crew is so mobile. And before I really dig into how this works, let's talk about the mobility. And let's talk about what Molly's role is, because that really dictates how you're going to play out this crew or any crew into a given strategy pool. So in this crew, Molly's role is really to provide focus, movement, cards, as we talked about earlier, counter scheming, and to shut down the effectiveness of the opponent's big threats by handing out slow with one more question, while the rogue necromancy and Archie are really the the beaters that cut them down to size. I talked about seeding the objective early. That's what the Kruligans do. In the strategy plan explosives, your scoring is based on your ability to get to the opposing side of the table and then take an interact on the opponent's side of the board to place a explosive marker in play. Obviously, you want to do that somewhere that they can't get to so that they can't pick it back up. Well, with the Kruligans, like we talked about earlier, they have a key ability by your side. At the start of their activation, they can discard a card to place within two of a friendly non-minion that they share a keyword with. So in a crew like this, those are your bomb carriers. You sprint something out early. You have the dead rider pick something up and help carry it forward, and then it can walk to the other side. You have the rogue necromancer. You have Archie, who are just amazingly maneuverable on their own. Get out there. Then the Kruligans can teleport to those, key off of those with their full allotment of actions left so that they can then walk, plant the bombs, ideally in a place that your opponent can't get to. So first turn, you're dropping three bombs with three minions in a hard-to-reach place that takes care of your strategy score and for the first three turns. That's going to force your opponent to react. And that's where those big models come into. I mentioned we needed to dig into the models a little bit more, and that's really what the role that Archie and the Rogue Necromancy fill. They're the beaters in this crew. Um, Archie brings Flurry. He's got high minimum damage. He's got Leap. He's amazingly maneuverable between leap and his base size and then his ability to walk charge or walk, walk charge and then flurry. He can get way out there. He can gain just over two inches on the base base width alone for the for the leap, allowing him without wasting any activations for walking, getting a 13 inch charge against something and still getting three attacks in it. If you're willing to forego one of those attacks, two attacks plus the flurry gives you three, then he can even get out to something 18 inches away. The rogue necromancy similarly is a very mobile beater as well with his ability to push because of ambush, then move charge, and then his triggers like pouncing strike that let him get multiple attacks against multiple models as well. So you seed the battlefield with the Kruligans, 
Archie and the Rogue Necromancer are your counterattack force that get out there and jump on the things as they come in. Molly commanding the battlefield, she gives you counter scheming depending on what the pool is so that she can pick up their markers. After the Kruligans have done their initial planning of the explosives, then they can either turn into just suicide missiles that that leapfrog to one of your other models to get in the way. They can counter scheme by picking up other people's scheme markers. They're also really good for when you look at the pool as a whole for accomplishing a lot of those other schemes like breakthrough where you need to get to the back and drop markers. Mm-hmm. Um, harness the ley line where they can teleport up real quick and lay out markers. And they can counter scheme your opponent. They can get up there and with their bonus action, take away your opponent's markers as well. Search the runes. When you look at those things, you want to have the tools in there so that I can scheme, I can counter scheme, I can also neutralize my opponent's threats, ideally as efficiently as possible, which is where things like the Kruligans come in because they can teleport up there to accomplish it for me at the same time when their fading ability they can remove an opponent's scheme marker so if they're doing their own harness the ley line if they're doing their own search the ruins when you're teleporting away from that spot you're claiming their marker mm-hmm. you're going to the place you need to put your marker then you've still got your full complement of actions left so that you're able to do a lot of these denial moves without even having to spend the actions to do it. So when I look at that kind of crew and I look at that kind of approach, that's that's why I would build something like that to play into that. As before, the effigy and the necrotic are really the healing engine to keep the big guys alive. And then the rogue necromancy and Archie are there really just to do that beat down and start removing models to prevent them from being able to counteract the plays that you're making. Yeah, because of the the Kruligan's uh, ability to efficiently get to where they need to, to drop markers and their ability to remove markers, I would think, you know, to your point, you're always going to bring one, but how many you bring, I think, is probably going to depend on how scheme marker heavy the pool is. Even if you're not going to take the schemes that require scheme markers, you may want to have those Kruligans in place to remove the markers if your opponent picked it, right? Uh, typically, I don't go that direction. A lot of times I'll have one in there regardless, because even with a different strategy, say Turf War, for example, the ability to teleport over have your full complement of actions, run around the back of a marker and flip it's great. But if I'm looking from a pure denial counter scheme for things like harness the ley line, break um, breakthrough, search the runes, etc., then Molly by herself can pick up those markers. You know, at that point, you really don't need more than maybe one Kruligan for a counter scheme role. The only time I'm really going to bring three is for something like plant explosives. The rest of the time, one or two is probably all you need because they're hard to chase down and there's so much efficiency in how they in how they function that you can get the counter scheming and denial from them at the same time you're using their ability to get them where they need to be to do the scheming for you very interesting and that 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 was obviously not my first thought and that makes that makes a lot more sense um do do we want to dig into corrupted idols a little bit i'm interested to hear you know how how you build into that. Uh, yeah, let's go there in a second. But let's talk about one or two other things first real quick, if Please. you don't mind. So w- when you're looking at something like this, especially with the with the Kruligans, 
into this type of pool, then you're obviously telegraphing what you're doing. I mean, it's not going to be any surprise to your opponent once you reveal crews and they see that number of Kruligans and they say you lay the bombs out, what your goal is. So building the deception into your deployment and into your first turn is a key part of the success because you are telegraphing so much just in terms of list design and list development. Um, a lot of times I try to counter that in deployment by, by the way I split my crew up. I never, almost never, Okay, you can't say never, but I very, <laughs> very rarely do I ever use from the shadows with the Krilligans. Um, oh, when, I was going to ask that. When you use from the shadows, you're giving up their ability to interact first turn. And so much of my strategy in most of the strategies is based around, as I talked about earlier, setting up the conditions for me to score first turn so that turns two, three, and four, where my opponent's having to spend actions to accomplish their schemes and strats, I can instead shift back to the the M2E kill first scheme later approach, mm-hmm. right? While they're trying to catch up. So with something like the Kruligans, I don't want to do from the shadows because I want to be able to get those bombs out. The good thing is the Kruligans are a great part of your deception plan and deployment because most likely you're going to end up pitching cards to use by your side anyway so you can put them wherever you want and you can build one half like if if you have to split your crew for the deployment you can build one half of your your crew really large three krilligans archie rogue necromancy effigy all in one crew with something like just molly the rider and the necrotic machine in the other and a lot of people's tendency is going to be well wow he's got six models in that side and it's archie and it's the rogue necromancy i've got to see where those go where that's not really accurate because with the krilligan's ability to teleport where you need them as long as you've got the right model then it doesn't matter where you put them so you can see those things out early if you're deploying that half or you can use them to weigh one half of the board uh, to stack it more heavily to try to incentivize your opponent to go over there while the rider just taxis somebody up on the far side. The the Kruligans go out, they do their business, and then you're set from the beginning. Corrupted Idols is a whole different ballgame. Uh, I think the things that are the most similar when you look at the strategies for a Molly crew are the way you play plant explosives and turf war. Corrupted Idols, you have to do something different with and then reckoning you have to take a different approach as well. With turf war, even though you're not planning explosives, you're doing the same type of approach where you're trying to get models out there first, you're trying to get out there early to flip as many of the of the of the turf war tokens or markers to you as possible and then pull back or into a sheltered position so that you don't have anything that can easily be picked off to give them the free marker flips. So you can play it real similar to how you play plant explosives, where first turn, Molly can use her push to push somebody up. Your Kruligans, your rider can taxi somebody up for the Kruligans to teleport to. Archie can leap somewhere and then double walk so a Kruligan can teleport and then flip the markers. And then you just pull more towards the 
center, depending on where the board is, so that you can get Molly in there, be disruptive, hand out slow, and just start tag teaming their models with your big stuff to pick out key things. With Corrupted Idols, it's a whole different game because then you're really looking at the maneuverability aspect balanced by the survivability aspect. Mm. Earlier, we talked about that. And you can make Archie survivable. You can make the Rogue Necromancy survivable if you've got the right tools in your list. But all the rest of these models that you're relying on to do your schemes, to do your strats in something like plant explosives or turf war, you know, and then schemes like, you know, breakthrough, harness the ley line, outflank, search the runes, et cetera, et cetera, are not very survivable when you're talking about soaking three damage in order to push the to push an idol. Corrupted idols is one of the few strategies where I still find myself going back to the forgotten marshal over and over and bringing him in as an option piece as well. The other thing you can do there. Talk to me about that. That's interesting. Sure. So the, the forgotten marshal with the more recent changes to him between the, the last two versions of the open beta, the big change was he's no longer an unlimited summoner. I originally with his bonus action, he could summon a model per turn for, potentially all five turns of the game. So in the last update, they gave him a summon upgrade to bring him in line with all the other summoners where their ability to summon models is pegged to the number of upgrades you can have in place. And he can only have two in play. What I like about him for Corrupted Idols, though, is he's bringing in sacrificial pawns that while they can't interact the turn they come into play, you can have somebody first turn already in your list, like a Kruligan or a Night Terror or something like that. I prefer a Kruligan who can get out there and push a marker while he is starting to build your bench, as it were, by summoning in the models that are going to start pushing the corrupted idols around later. Maybe I'm not going to bring three Kruligans into my list. Maybe I'm only going to have one in my list. And then I'm going to have the, the marshal out there bringing in additional Kruligans or bringing in rabble rousers. If I bring him in, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to kid him out with the whisper so that between your starting hand, um, the cards that you get to see from Molly's card draw, both with her front of the card ability, Gorgon's influence, which potentially can net you a ton of cards if your opponent's not being careful, and then her ability to draw cards with lost knowledge. You're going to see enough cards between that, your starting hand, and the whisper that he's bringing in those expendable models that he can summon in a model on turn one. Turn two, that's the Kruligan that's going to teleport over there, kill itself, pushing the idol, and that's returning his upgrade to my upgrade pool while on turn two, he summoned the model that's going to teleport and push the idol on turn three. So by killing off his own models, he can recycle those upgrades to give you a continual stream of fodder that if it's, if it's things like Kruligans can use by your side to teleport to whatever part of the board they need to, as long as you've got an appropriate anchor nearby that they can then push push the marker for you 
or the idle for you, and you don't care if they die because they didn't cost you nothing but you yeah. know a seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever of crows. I'd have to flip his card over to look, but uh, from memory, it's maybe a seven or higher to get a crow again. So um, that's when I'd bring the the marshal in. I also like to keep the healing in there so that if I am forced to use some of my more mainstay models to to push the idols i can then top back off archie actually makes a pretty good idol pusher he's real maneuverable between leap the additional distance that you gain from his base width when he leaps um, and then his walks he can get pretty far and, and he's got a ton of wounds yeah and then you know you get a chance to get him to attack something he discards a card for flurry he's got his built-in heal from his fading ability Manos is another one that's I mentioned Manos earlier and we didn't really talk about him beyond bringing him in to shut down Demise abilities Corrupted Idols is another strategy that Manos is good for um, he's got a lot of healing built in with his regenerate ability he's got leap as well he can use stones so much like your Kruligans and your other things he can get out there really quickly dump wounds into pushing an idol and then gain them back pretty quick as well a lot of it comes down to the schemes when you look at your crew selection not just the strategy you've almost got a pretty template approach even with idols if you look across these at the things we've talked about about how you use the maneuverability of your crew how you use things that multiply or augment their maneuverability like the rider who would ride with me can also taxi somebody up um, or the leaps or even when we were talking about secondary masters at one point, we mentioned that morning, how he can bring another push into the crew as well. And you're trying to just amp up that maneuverability so high on all three of those strategies that you can knock the strategy out really quickly, get your pieces in place, do your scheming incidentally, and force the opponent to have to react to you. That, that's excellent, Steve. All right, so here's the scenario. Are you ready? Awesome. Let's do it. Uh, U.S. Faux Tour Masters next year, 2020. The first uh, U.S. Masters. You are on top table and you look at the pool. I want to know what the strategy and some of the schemes are that make you just go, I'm going to win this thing and I'm going to do it with Molly. What is your ideal pool? My ideal pool. Either Turf War or Plant Explosives, either one. Plant Explosives, as we talked about earlier, Molly can do really, really well. Plant Explosives is really going to force me to probably bring three Krilligans, though, and I prefer to play a much more elite-style crew unless I'm playing into that one. But either one of those, say Turf War or Plant Explosives, the schemes I want to see, um, depending on deployment, really, um, she can do most of the schemes. There are some schemes I just don't like. For example, in the game I played today against the Lynch crew, in this one pool, which is, I'm going the opposite direction of what you asked me, uh, was the terrible pool. Mm-hmm. In this one pool, I had deliver, deliver um, the message. We had assassinate, and we also had take prisoner on the same pool which are three schemes I do not like at all because they're schemes that force me to leave a model and a sometimes a key model alive. Right. right? Now, typically, 
given the option, I'm going to gun for the opposing master, not just because it's the master, but a lot of times the master is a key component of somebody's crew. It's the focus of their strategy. It's the center point for how their crew works. You know, whether it's the beater or it's the supporter or the augmenter, um, for their approach. So a lot of times I'm going to gun for the master. So something like assassinate where I can't just kill the master in one round and I have to leave it alive for a second turn. I don't like deliver a message for the same reason. You're letting them keep their key piece for the entire game. Something you don't want to do as well. Um, same thing with take prisoner. With take prisoner, you got a little more flexibility, but Ideally, for me, the scheme pool doesn't limit me right, and doesn't force me to rely on my opponent to do specific things. So I want to see things in there like outflank, because as maneuverable as the crew is, I can drop a couple models over there real quick, pop it off. I get my first point for outflank. You're never going to chase these crewligans down. And then last turn of the game, when I need them to, they can be right back over there doing the same thing again. Um, breakthrough for the same reason, especially if we're talking about either standard deployment, wedge deployment, or flank deployment. I don't like breakthrough as much for corner deployment because it is so far away. And unless they're playing aggressively, a lot of times, as aggressively as I play the Molly crew, they're still going to have models near their deployment zone. So breakthrough is a little more risky in turf war because their deployment zone is so small that if I have something like a, a Kruligan back there, it's easy for them to react to. If we're not corner deployment, if we're wedge, if we're standard, if we're flank, then I want to see breakthrough. I want to see outflank, as I mentioned. I want to see uh, search the runes. Because that's something else I can set up early. I can set up first turn. Even though you can't score it first turn, I can set up the markers first turn so that I can score it second turn. And then near the end of the game, I can drop a few more markers real easily as well, especially depending on how you're running the crew. There's so many ways you've got to push models around. And the other thing that's great about these is if search is in the pool, if uh, breakthroughs in the pool, if schemes like this are in the pool that are marker-based schemes, then the tools that I'm bringing, like we talked about earlier, to accomplish these schemes are allowing me to neutralize my opponent's ability to accomplish these schemes. Right. So something like that is what I'm really looking for. I'm looking for turf war. I'm looking for plant explosives. I'm looking for, depending on the deployment, uh, breakthrough. Or outflank, I really love outflank in things that are corner deployment or tur- or uh, or flank deployment, just because it's so hard for people to get models over there, and this crew can get models over there really quickly. And then things like search, etc. I mean, those are all good ones. The last thing I want to see is the things we already talked about that force me to interact with the opponent to accomplish the schemes. Mm-hmm. Now. I'm not going to play a keep away game. Believe me, with McMorning in the crew, with the Dead Rider in the crew, with Archie in the crew, or with something like Archie the Rogue Necromancy and the Rider in the crew, you're going to do plenty of interacting with the other person's crew. It's just not going to be using the interact action. Right, right. right. <laughs> so, 
you're not going to be playing a game of keep away, but you don't want how you engage the other crew dictated by what the pool is. You want to be able to make those decisions based on which models can I focus on of theirs and deny them capabilities that they need to accomplish their schemes, to take away actions that they have, and to take away the pieces that they're depending on to neutralize my approach. And you want to be able to dictate that, not have the schemes dictate it for you. That makes a ton of sense, man. That makes a ton of sense. All right, we're going to take one last break here, uh, Steve. And then when we get back, I want to uh, give the non-reser players out there a little bit of a secret sauce on how to counter Molly and the Forgot. Uh, So we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. All right, so Steve, we got a good idea. kind of what your approach to Molly is, um, you know, what, what's going through your head as you're building, what you're going through your head as you're playing. Um, now we got to uh, let all of those people that stuck around that don't play resers, we got to give them a little bit of juice. So talk to me about what scares Molly and Forgotten, or if someone's going up against Molly and Forgotten, what, what, what are some potential good weaknesses or counters they can take advantage of? There's a number of things. I really think Molly's crew, the Forgotten, is one of those. It's easier to coach somebody on how to play against them than it is on how to coach them how to play them. Because knowledge of the cards and what they do is one thing. Being able to take it and apply it on the tabletop, adapt it to a variety of pools, a variety of enemy crews, and situations is a lot more difficult. But talking about countering her is really a matter of you being situationally aware about two or three different things and then equipping yourself with the right tools to go against her. First is, there's a lot of power, as we talked about at the very beginning, potentially in her signature ability, Les Caress. If a person doesn't think about it and actively consider it when they're planning out their turn and what they're going to do with their models, then every time they duplicate actions, they're pinging their models for two damage, two damage, two damage, two damage. Doesn't sound like a whole lot, but over the course of a number of turns, if a person is careless with their actions, that's enough to kill your average minion model just in three turns if they're not careful or four turns if they're not careful and they're duplicating actions. So plan out, plan out your movement, plan out your attacks. In the early turns especially, think about the move, charge, or charge, move, so you can still get the movement you need without taking damage. Aside from... from planning out your action, it's looking at how you counter less caress. So if they're running a lot of size three big base models, using those to block line of sight to Molly, using terrain to block line of sight to Molly, using your own models to block line of sight to Molly, and then less caress doesn't matter at all. The other thing Molly brings to the table too, passively, is just card draw. Gorgon's influence on the front of her card. If she's got less cards than you do, when she activates, then she can draw back up. So if you've got five or six cards in hand, and I've already pitched two or three cards for Kruligans to teleport, I've pitched a few cards for Flurry on Archie, I've cheated something down. I've actually had games where I had one of my Kruligans attack another one of my models as my first activation, just so I could cheat cards with both models to empty my hand of bad cards before Molly activated and drew back up. So 
paying attention to the hand size, it's not as critical as it was when fading also keyed off of the hand size difference, but paying attention to your hand size, getting rid of cards you don't need while maintaining the cards you do that can limit the card draw she gets from Gorgon's influence. Ruthless models. A lot of the forgotten models rely on terrifying as one of their primary defenses. So Archie, the rogue necromancy we talked about earlier, Philip and the nanny, some of these other models we talked about rely on terrifying. They rely on manipulative. They rely on those types of things as their primary defense mechanism because they're all defense for maybe defense five and X amount of wounds. Mm -hmm. So ruthless models that can get around terrifying, that can get around uh, manipulative. If somebody is taking Philip and the nanny for whatever reason that I haven't figured out yet, uh, then things like that can help you circumvent those defenses as well. The other thing we talked about at the very beginning was action diversity, things with multiple types of attacks, where you either have multiple melee attacks or you have multiple shooting attacks, or you have a mix of both so that the same model can shoot, charge, focus, charge, um, take two different melee attacks, etc. So you're always able to maximize the effectiveness of their actions without taking the ping damage for lifts. Other than that, the Forgotten Crew has got the same standard weaknesses that you see across the Reser faction as a general. They have abysmal defense. They have no widespread condition removal. Um, while they don't have any condition removal within Keyword, they can bring it in with things like nurses, and then, of course, Archie's immune to it. But conditions, especially things like distracted and injured, are things that can really cripple or handicap the crew. Other than that, something like Sonya with mass blast models that can blast a lot, that can lay out the the burning, that can lay out poison, that can stack negative conditions on the model, can really handicap the forgotten crew. And then probably lastly, the other thing I would say is having a few models in there that are high armor that can serve as tanks, that can slow down the beaters and prevent them from getting into your key models and getting that getting that advantage. Even if you've just got one or two, you don't have to be playing the Hoffball or you don't have to be playing a similar faction. Even if you've just got one or two models like a Samurai or a Zamu or something like that, that's armored too, that can get in there and effectively shut down somebody like Archie so that they're only doing one damage per hit while Yanlo's topping up a Zamu. It's not going to take a Zamu more than a couple rounds to chew through Archie and then move on to another target. Same thing for other examples, you know, like the Ice Golem or anything in any of a number of other factions that can bring a, an armor to big beater model to the table. The best counters for things like Archie are your big beaters of your own that are more survivable and then can pin him down and stop him from doing what he does. Those are really the things that I would recommend is the blast, the conditions, the action diversity, the paying attention to your maneuver, paying attention to your hand size, and then having that armor model that can help shut down the beaters. Those are really the tools. Other than that, you know what they're capable of, so it's making that good assessment early about what schemes they took and what schemes you need to take to not leave you susceptible to the tools that she brings. Against the Molly crew, don't take schemes that make you put out a bunch of markers. Mm -hmm. If you're putting out 
Um, if you're putting out markers to get searched the runes, if you're putting out markers to get harnessed the ley lines, if you're doing these things, then you know the Kruligans are going to pick them up to let me draw cards. Molly's going to pick them up to let me draw cards. The Kruligans are going to pick them up incidentally when they're teleporting off to do my own stuff. So don't take the schemes against them that Molly and her crew can do without having to dedicate any actual actions to do so, because then you're just even further handicapping yourself when most likely you're already going to be at a disadvantage because of slowing all the other things that her crew can do and the maneuverability that they have. Yeah, I think that's all great advice, Stephen. It's completely in line with everything you said when we were talking about strengths here uh, for the first part. So that's good. Uh, Steve, I can't thank you enough, man. This was this was good info. And uh, I just want to let everybody know that uh, offline, I've already uh, talked to Steve about um, doing another deep dive. And he told me that somebody he's been getting on the table a lot is Marcus. So you can look forward to seeing uh, Marcus. Now, do you think Steve will do that via the Arcanist or via Neverborn? Arcanist. Um, there's been a, a debate on the forum recently about where he's better. And I know the Neverborn players think that with Ruger and things like that, that they have the advantage. But so far, I'm really digging him in Arcanist because of the versatile models and the Arcanist beast and what they bring to the table. Awesome. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you can catch our deep dive into uh, Arcanist uh, uh, Marcus. Um, other things that we've got coming up soon is um, we're going to have James Doxy back and he's going to be talking to us with a deep dive into Karis. So, so uh, all of you Arcanists out there are getting a ton of love. And then I've also got Jamie Varney uh, lined up for to dig into some more Rezor love. So we're going to talk about Albus and a deep dive. So make sure that you are uh, subscribed to the podcast. Make sure that, of course, that you go to our YouTube channel, thirdfloorwars.com, and uh, the website. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Steve, take care of yourself, and we'll be talking again soon. Yeah, it was great. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and write a review on this podcast so we can find more people almost as cool as you are. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube by searching for Third Floor Wars. That's T-H-I-R-D. We'll catch you next time on The Third Floor.